Grace, the Amy Santiago of Royal Bloggers. And I'm Jessica, the Dorothy's Boring app of Royal Bloggers. And we'd like to welcome you to On Air, the podcast where two cynical Brits discuss the latest royal news and the truth behind the story. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the On Air podcast. This week we are looking at a actually relevant news story that that's happened within the last month which is the recent uh visits and statement that the prince of wales prince william um made about the current conflict in the middle east between israel and palestine so i think we have to give a disclaimer we are both aware that people have very strong feelings about this topic and i just want to say at the beginning that this is not about wading into conversations that neither of us feel we are equipped to have in a responsible way. And I think most of this episode won't actually really be about Israel and Palestine at all. I, I Looking at my notes, I think they'd be pretty much exactly the same if I was talking about Spain and Portugal or Sweden and Denmark. Like It's not about the individual countries. I think this is a royal podcast. And so we will be talking about how a constitutional monarchy works and whether William's statement was appropriate in that context and that context only. This podcast is not about morality. It is about the law. I think maybe we should have this podcast is not about morality in our description. <laughs> yeah. I was like, this feels right. Yeah. Probably, I mean, we're never about morality. We are not good examples of... <laughs> Just like generally, this podcast is not about morality. We're not here looking for morality. So... The, the reason we're talking about this at all is last week, Prince William went on um, a engagement and the Kensington Palace did that little thing with the elite press that he's going to do another one. Um, looking at, I think they actually phrased it as Middle Eastern conflicts and like the situation in the Middle East. Um, and he released a statement and it was immediately picked up by all major news broadcasting services um, with lots of people saying that it was a brilliant statement and, and lots of people saying he should never ever have released it with absolutely no evidence for any of their views. So we thought we'd look at what actually the role of a monarchy is and then decide. I judge most of like the reaction to things from like what at least initially from like what's going on in my inbox and what I get and the comments on my posts or whatever and I would say that so far for me the overwhelming feeling from people has mostly been confusion saying like I don't really know if this is okay and I don't really see how this is different from this situation and so we wanted to kind of help yeah help explain things that's what we're going for yeah exactly um so we're going to start off by talking about I guess the constitution oh I'm so excited I am a constitution girl <laughs> Um, anyone who knows me knows I'm a constitution girl, which I've just realized sounds like like the most boring superhero ever. Constitution you know. girl. Here comes constitution girl. She just reads out a list of laws and that's it. But if you're a normal person, then you might be wondering, I mean, first of all, what is a constitution? So a constitution is the set of fundamental principles that govern a state. It might include, you know, this, this form of government that you take. So it'll say like in, you know, Sweden or whatever it says that they are a constitutional monarchy. It might talk about, you know, how the government is divided and which different parts you have and how often elections happen and how they work. It might also include things like your fundamental uh, rights and freedoms, so like freedom of the press or freedom of religion or whatever. 
as a fairly well-educated woman, it took me a really long time to know that we had a constitution in Britain because it's just not brought up ever. <laughs> well, yes, that's that's the main confusion, I think, is because most countries have a codified constitution. So they have one or a small handful of law of documents of statutes that make up these fundamental laws and are referred to as the constitution so in the u.s you have the u.s constitution in sweden they have four basic that's the one i've read the most um that's why i'm referencing it so frequently (laughs) they um they have four fundamental laws that make up their constitution in the uk we have not codified our constitution and you could you do get people saying oh, the UK doesn't have a constitution. That is not true. But we don't have like a single written document that we can look at and or just as, you know, a small handful of documents that we can point to and say these together make up our constitution. We have hundreds of statutes, conventions, treaties, judicial decisions, so common law from hundreds of years um, that collectively make up our constitution. So if somebody says the UK doesn't have a constitution, that's not correct but we don't have a single codified constitution in the way that most other countries do. Yeah, I think the thing that was the most interesting to me when I learned about the British constitution was how much of it is tradition. Mm -hmm. Because so many people are like, oh, you can't do things just because it's the way things are traditionally done. And it's like, well, actually, legally, you kind of have to, to an extent, because that's how this country works. And I think because it's, it's not completely unique to Britain, but it is very unique amongst you know the western world's approach to uh, constitutions i think that's a lot where a lot of the kind of confusion between countries we are really similar to i'm thinking america basically but britain and america are really similar countries but this or fundamental aspect is completely different and i think that's where some of the confusion arises i think in some ways it's good because it means that we can change things really easily so like if you look at some countries i think it's japan where in order to make any changes to their constitution, they have to have like two thirds of one part of the government have to vote in favor of it. Three quarters of another part of the government have to vote in favor of it, which is never going to happen because obviously you've got, if you've got more than one political party, they're all going to vote according to their political party. So you're never going to get, or you're very, it's very, very rare that you're going to get that many people to vote one way. And then even once it's gone through that process, it then has to go to a public referendum and they, the public have to uh, give a supermajority. So like it, in most countries, it is incredibly difficult to change the constitution, whereas we had a change to like our the length of time that you can go with between elections. And it took about 18 months to get the law passed, which is about standard for any law. But of course, the downside, as Grace mentioned, is that flexibility often leads to ambiguity it's one of those things that's very cultural because mm-hmm. it's completely normal to me in a weird way. Like I couldn't explain it, but I understand it. Whereas I imagine to lots of other things they're going, what on earth is going on? One of the most confusing aspects in kind of what we're talking about today is this con- is this principle of constitutional convention, which is very big in the UK. It is present in other countries. Other countries will have constitutional conventions, but there are theoretically lots of things that like politicians or public figures like royals could legally do because there is no law anywhere that says that they can't do them. However, they ch- often, in most cases, choose not to do those things because of constitutional conventions, which are essentially kind of rules about how you should behave in public office that are not necessarily legally enforceable but 
they are sort of the standards of how people are expected to behave. An uh, example of a constitutional convention is the monarch appointing the prime minister. So theoretically, our monarch could appoint anybody that they want to be the prime minister, but it is convention that they appoint the person who leads the party with the largest majority in the House of Commons. It's not written anywhere that they have to do that. Well, it's not written in law that they have to do that, but it's a convention that's built up over time that that is what they do, and it would be massive if they didn't. <laughs> we Conventions are so... Like, so many things in the world aren't written down as what you do. Like, I was thinking... I was trying to get this straight in my head. I was like, if you go outside and you want to drink a water, most of the time you take it in a bottle. But there's nothing saying you can't just walk down the street with a glass of water in your hand, apart yes, from convention. True. And it is, it's the same situation. Like, there is nothing to say that, you know, the monarch can't just be like, um, and today I think I'm going to introduce a new law, blah, blah, blah. But um, convention and, you know, the will of the people have sort of a strong guidance on these things sometimes when we talk about constitutional conventions people think that like oh well they're not really that big a deal because they're not written down in law so they don't you know they can't they don't really matter they're just things that people choose to do and I think we've seen that conversation even if people don't realize that's the conversation they're having because maybe they don't know about constitutional conventions that we are kind of having that conversation a lot over the last few years since Harry and Meghan left are these rules that are put in place just to make things difficult for people And, and does anything happen if people break them can you expect somebody to keep to something that is not legally enforceable, but it's, you know, it's sort of, it's just a guideline of how you should behave. Is it reasonable to hold somebody to that standard? And I think I would like to quote my favorite website on the whole internet, the UCL's constitution unit. (laughs) (laughs) Of course that's your favorite website. (laughs) I know this, this this episode is doing absolutely nothing for my street cred. Um, I think using the term street cred probably also isn't helpful, but (laughs) The quote then this is I've used this quote a few times on Tumblr and I, I think it's really helpful um, so it, the quote is the fact that such rules are non-legal and so legally unenforceable does not mean that they lack enforcers or sanctions though these will be political not legal in nature nor does this mean they are unimportant compared to legal rules on the contrary conventions play a key role in the British constitution they ensure that the constitution operates in accordance with prevailing constitutional values existing conventions may evolve and new ones emerge in line with changing practice and changing attitudes in this way significant constitutional change can occur over time without any fundamental changes in the law so as you can see here like nobody's going to be arrested if they break constitutional convention because it's not a law but that doesn't mean that there won't be consequences it's, yeah, first of all, it's a great quote. Um, and I think it does make a lot of sense. I like the part about, like, it doesn't mean there's not enforcers, mm-hmm. but they're not legal enforcers. Yeah. Because I think that's what we've seen so much of over the last few years, is people being like, "It's I know that's not, it's, I'm saying it's not how we do things, but there's a reason why that's not how we do things, but there's nothing written down, so I can't point to it and say, oh, the reason we don't do it is because of law section 7b part 2. People are just going that's not right um because it just isn't the way we do things and i a lot of people particularly from other countries are going that's not a good enough reason not to change things and i agree to an extent there are some times where you're like oh maybe we can develop these laws like i'm sure in lots of countries they do change and develop rules but just because it's not written down doesn't mean that it's not um important and to the culture of britain i think that there is kind of an attitude that Conventions are just arbitrary rules that British people make up to make things difficult for ourselves unnecessarily. 
and the, it doesn't really matter if people follow them because it's, I think people confuse it with manners because a lot of it is about how you conduct yourself and so they think it's just oh it's a hoity-toity Brits being all um, judgmental about people who don't follow the same manners as them but I think it actually goes back to a few of our previous episodes. So Cones of Power, my favorite episode we've ever done, <laughs> um, but also our, our abdication episodes quite recently. So I used the example, one of my classic pop culture analogies um, in our abdication episodes about comparing um, monarchies to weebles, <laughs> which were children's toy with a, toys with a weighted bottom. And the, the slogan is weebles wobble, but they don't fall down. So you push a weeble and it wobbles about a bit, but then it always writes itself constitutional monarchies are kind of like weebles and that if they're successful they will wobble occasionally but they always somehow find a way to right themselves and i think that conventions they help us to keep a balance because these things are not written down but there are still certain expectations of how you should behave Con conventions really at their core are about exercising restraint so the, the example i used of the monarch appointing the prime minister they could do, appoint me prime minister they're not going to they choose to exercise restraint as we said in the examples of our in our abdication episodes if a royal or a politician because these apply to both if they overstep the mark even if they aren't necessarily arrested because it's not illegal they might be forced to abdicate the prime minister might be forced to quit there could be civil war there could be revolution there could be assassination attempts so you kind of there are very, very real consequences to conventional to conventions being broken. It, even though they are not law, they kind of they're so important to the running of the country that they almost have the weight of a law anyway. I remember having conversations with my my sort of my friends at uni about about monarchy, just as you do, casually. Um, and I remember that at that time, not knowing what really about the British constitution. I knew about the American one, as you do, but I didn't know about the British one. And I remember them saying things like, them being like, well, what's the point of having a monarch when they could just, you know, appoint whoever they want to be a prime They could just not sign the laws. And I was like, okay, legally you're right, but they can't. They can't do that because that wouldn't happen. And it, it there was a, it was almost like my, my friend I'm thinking about, she, bless her, she's very American. She's moving to America and she's going to get American citizenship. So I feel like she was just in her core American from birth because she <laughs> just could not understand the fact that I was like, yeah, but he can't do that. Or at that time, she can't do that because that's not how it happens. And if, you know, if tomorrow we woke up and Charles was like, yeah, so now um, David Attenborough is the prime minister and everyone has to walk backwards, there would be some kind of revolution. So, <laughs> and he wouldn't last long. I, I understand why people think that it's just silly little British laws that or silly little British rules that we come up with because we're uh, oppressed and, uh, you know, like rules and like making other people feel like they're not following the rules. But these aren't pointless. These have a reason. I think sometimes it's just accepting that we don't know what is like the in-depth nature of other countries or even your own country. And that's why, you know, it's really hard to understand things between similar cultures when they have these kind of fundamental building block differences. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So I think the main convention that applies in this particular con context that we're talking about is the idea that a royal will not be partisan. People get this wrong. And this has become one of my incredibly boring catchphrases, um, <laughs> which is that royals are inherently political. What they can't be is partisan. When I say partisan, I kind of mean one-sided. So backing one particular side of a political conversation. 
Um, and it's really about like specific party policy. So like you have rogue politicians who say whatever they want all the time, but that doesn't necessarily reflect the official position of the party. I think it's important to be clear because royals, uh, it's his majesty's government. The government operates in his name. Uh, he signs all of the laws and the royals, you know, particularly somebody in William's position can deputize for him and can sign laws. So they are inherently by their existence political. Yeah, even when I was looking for this episode, I saw a lot of newspaper articles. And I understand that newspaper articles are, they want, and I won't say clickbait, but you want a head, heading that everyone is going to know. And royals can't be partisan, it's not a catchy heading. Think for yourself. <laughs> will King Charles be political? And I was like, well, yes, I'd like to hope he will be, because that's <laughs> his job. Um, and then even, even though when you sort of read into some articles and things, there's a lot of people being like, you know, royals are very much non-political. They don't get involved in politics. And I was like, okay, that's wrong. That's wrong. Yeah. That's also wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And, I, you know, I think, I mean, you can, as, and then I was, when I was reading all these articles and they're like, look at all these exceptions. And I was like, they were just giving examples of them being political and non-partisan, which is what they should be. But I, I also think, you know, partisan is almost impossible it's it's not an impossible concept to understand because it's just not being prejudiced in favour of one cause over another. But it does require you to know the current um, standing of the political parties of the UK, which I don't even do half the time, let alone people who don't live in the UK. In practice, I'll, I'll use an example in practice. William can say homelessness is bad and we should try to stop homelessness because every every party in the UK, their official position will be homelessness is bad and we should try to stop it. However, William couldn't say homelessness is bad and it's caused by the Conservative Party's cutbacks on public services or even cutbacks on public services because that's something that was introduced by the Conservative Party. But I do think that I'm, you know, that's a very simplistic example and sometimes like in the conversation that we're going to have today it is a little bit harder to judge. You know, as you said, it requires a level of knowledge about the political positions of different parties yeah and i think you know in britain as there are in many countries obviously i'm talking about britain there are so many political parties and with different opinions we have devolved um governments in northern ireland and scotland and wales speaking just as being you know for charles being the head of state of the uk not counting anywhere else in the commonwealth um which also throws the spanner into the works (laughs) william and charles are talking about specifically uh, have to kind of give their when they give their opinions on things and come up with choices they have to be okay sort of okayed but they can't they have to be aware of what all the different parties are saying and you know they sort of span the spectrum from far right parties to uh, incredibly left-wing parties so it's a, it's a very hard line to follow and they're not the only groups also who have to do this like i work for a charity and charities have to be legally um very careful about what we say politically so we can say we're concerned about this particular thing and we'd like you to do this but we can't sort of attack and we can't lobby to a certain degree so there are limitations on lots of organizations and individuals who hold some sort of public public responsibility or public office or something like that so it's not just royals who are trying to grapple with what is partisan and what is not I know, I've got a friend who works for Channel 4 and she says she's got, you know, on her social media, she's very political, but there's certain things where they're like, no, don't get involved in that one because it will come back to us. So I think it is definitely sort of trickles down 
far more than just the it's not just like oh this is an issue that deals with five people in the uk and they're all rich (laughs) yeah exactly something else to say is just like like everything else like all other conventions as i mentioned it's not just an arbitrary thing that like a few weeks ago somebody decided you know it'd be really fun if we meant made our royal family not be able to talk about partisan issues uh it's something that has developed over a very long time and there's not even like one specific event necessarily you can say this is the thing so in the abdication episode i talked about how going as far back as the magna carta in the 13th in 13th century 1200s there was acknowledgement that the monarch ruled with the consent of the people and that they had to take advice from the community which is their form of parliament essentially And then over the centuries, you had a gradual limitation of royal power and royal ability to do whatever they wanted, um, sort of culminating in the Glorious Revolution, as it's called, in the 17th (laughs) century. And that's when Parliament removed King James II slash 7th and replaced him with the Orange Monarch, who we mentioned last week. It's all tied together, isn't it? We just link everything together now. (laughs) We said last week that briefly we had an Orange Monarch, so the house... Uh, the Dutch monarchy is the House of Orange Nassau, and we very briefly had an orange monarch, and this is when he came in, in the Glorious Revolution. Yeah, at, at that point in time, because Parliament had removed the monarch and sort of replaced it with the person they wanted, they uh, declared that Parliament is the supreme power of England, because at the time we didn't have the UK as such. Uh, the monarch did still have some ability to kind of get involved in things and continued to use that up until William IV in the 1830s, who made an incredibly unpopular decision to dissolve Parliament because they didn't agree with him and everyone was really mad about it. And so ever since then, pretty much, the monarch has just decided to stay out of party politics. It, it, that's a very potted history of where this idea comes from because it doesn't really come from one specific place. But I think you can see that it's it, it's not just arbitrary. It's designed because of trial and error and learning and understanding what is the norm and, and what people expect of the monarchy. And it sort of happened over time and now has been sort of convention for, yeah, almost 200 years. On the 20th, Prince William made a visit to the British Red Cross and Kensington Palace said this was the first of two visits over the next few weeks to hear more about the human impact of the ongoing conflicts in the Middle East. And this one was specifically to hear about the people supporting humanitarian response and just kind of listen to what was going on. And then they also announced that his next visit, which... It said the next few weeks. A lot of people have said it's going to be next week, but I don't know if that's confirmed. Um, will be a visit to a synagogue where he is going to meet with young people from all sorts of different backgrounds and talk about the rise of anti-Semitism in the UK. So we're kind of going to go through and analyse was William partisan? Because that's essentially the conversation that most people have been having, even if they don't realise or don't use those words. That's the conversation that's come out of it. And... Again, I just want to say the only thing that matters in this conversation is whether or not it was partisan. This is not about morality. This is not about whether I agree with William's statement or not. This is solely did William follow constitutional convention? I could I I do have a more expansive answer that explains about this. But in short, if you just want to stop the podcast now, was the visit to the Red Cross partisan? No. In my opinion. (laughs) What do you think? (laughs) Yeah, agreed. Yeah, yeah. You agree, yeah. Yeah, I think, so my reasoning is that every party in the UK at the moment, regardless of their stance on the wider conflict, will tell you people dying, bad, aid, good, anti-Semitism, bad. So William saying that is absolutely fine to me. And I actually think that 
the Red Cross was a really good choice to go to because there are quite a lot of aid groups who are working in the area who are not well liked by either side or who might take a more explicit political stance whereas the Red Cross is at least on the face of it politically neutral and they do although a lot of their work is obviously in Gaza because that's where the larger number of deaths are they do also have a branch that works in Israel and has been supporting hostages and um, aid on that side of things so they are quite a neutral organization compared to some other aid groups that he could have chosen to visit. The Red Cross I think has always been sort of patronaged by the monarch as well so it's got a, it's a real sort of royal historical link so it it made a lot of sense as that was where they chose to visit and also in terms of William as his kind of interests and things it, it he for other conflicts he has <clears throat> um, visited sort of aid places for places of, of, of refuge fairly early on so it's if you look at past precedents the president suggested that that would be one of the first places he would go and visit somewhere where they are giving aid to everyone involved in the conflict. Yeah, it was. I I I don't have a problem with this visit at all, basically. No, <laughs> worked well. Well done, yes. William. Yeah. On the same day as the visit to the British Red Cross, Prince William released a statement about um, the Israel-Palestine conflict, which I'm just going to read because it's not yeah. that long. Um, which said, I remain deeply concerned about the terrible human cost of the conflict in the Middle East since the Hamas terrorist attack on 7th of October. Too many have been killed. I, like so many others, want to see an end to the fighting as soon as possible. There is a desperate need for increased humanitarian support to Gaza. It's critical that aid gets in and hostages are released. Sometimes it is only when faced with the sheer scale of human suffering that the importance of permanent peace is brought home. Even in the darkest hour, we must not succumb to the council of despair. I continue to cling to the hope that a brighter future can be found, and I refuse to give up on that. He's being Mr. Optimism again. I know, I was like, oh my god, he's the most optimistic person I've ever met. He's <laughs> like, no, it's fine, everyone's going to be fine. Positivity, guys, that'll get through us. Yeah, no, I think, so we decided to do the statement second, consciously, because I think it's harder. I think the Red Cross, it's like, for me, it's clear, no, it's not partisan. Um, I can understand why people are bothered about it, but under the constitutional convention it's not partisan so he's fine to do it the statement is harder there's a lot in it <laughs> yes yeah well i mean I, again to sort of start with the easy bit i think the second half is not really specific enough to be partisan because it's all about peace and hope and that's not a specific policy position <laughs> so <laughs> so i don't think that i i it's really the first time i don't think the second half is actually the last part is you know we should all be optimistic and we should all hope for peace. That's a, that's just a bit too Miss World to be, uh, you know, specifically partisan in my book. Yes, yeah, like oh, we must not succumb to despair. Yeah. That's fine. Everyone's kind of agrees on that in in yeah. general. And you know, no no party in the UK's official position is let's just invade France. Like that would be fun. You know, we're not expansionists anymore. We're not trying to build a new empire. But that's not calling for world peace is not necessarily partisan i also think he also called for specifically more aid and again all political parties whether they act like it or not whether they make actions to you know achieve what they say they believe or not the official policy position of all different political parties is that there should be more aid in gaza so again that's not partisan in my view yeah that was the thing when i first read i thought oh that's a bit dodgy and i thought no actually officially it's not it's fine (laughs) actually that one's fine well this goes back to the fact that you know we were talking earlier about understanding constitutional constitutional conventions 
you really have to know what the positions of the political parties are in order to be able to decide if something is partisan or not. So I can understand why people who maybe don't know the ins and outs might look at this statement and think, oh, well, that's a dodgy thing to say. But actually, theoretically, all of the parties agree that there should be more aid in Gaza. So actually, it isn't an issue that you said it. The only line I found troublesome or the line that I actually think is the core of this is one that maybe doesn't seem very dramatic. It is, I, like so many others, want to see an end to the fighting as soon as possible. Yes, that's the one. Yeah, I'm glad you agree. Well, actually, no, I'm not. I really want us to disagree with each other just to please that person who commented and said we agree with each other too much. I disagree with that line. I think the worst thing is too many have been killed. Yes, that's the line for me. And the main reason is that I think the, the main point of differentiation between all of the political parties in the UK at the moment is the timing of a ceasefire. So if you actually look at the official party position from all of the main parties that have been involved in this conversation, they all say people dying bad. They all say aid is good. And they all say that they don't want this fighting to go on forever. So they all support some kind of ceasefire because that's what ceasefire is, is stopping fighting. However, in the detail, they are very, very much in disagreement. Again, a whistle-stop tour of the political parties in the UK. The three main ones that have been involved in this conversation have been the SNP. So they're the party that is the biggest group in Scotland and so are very powerful in Scotland. The Labour Party, who are the opposition, so they're the sort of second biggest party. And the other party is the Conservatives. And usually our government's kind of flip-flop between the Conservatives and the Labour Party because they're the two biggest. The SNP's position was immediate ceasefire, no conditions, immediate The Labour Party's position was for, quote, an immediate humanitarian ceasefire. And then there were some conditions. So, for example, they said that Israel could not be expected to adhere to a ceasefire if Hamas attacked them. The Tories, the Conservative Party, their position is a humanitarian pause and then a ceasefire in the long term when it's possible, but not necessarily immediately. And I can't express to people who are not from the UK how important the term immediate has become in this conversation, because the Labour Party was ready to tear itself apart about whether or not (laughs) Keir Starmer included the word immediate. Because for some people, they think, well, the fighting has to stop now. Like, it doesn't matter about all these conditions. It doesn't matter about all of that. It has to stop now because too many people are dying. Whereas other people will say, well, you know, if it stops now, you leave all of the Hamas infrastructure in place, they could retaliate and then Israel's in danger. And I don't think that's right. So we shouldn't, it shouldn't be immediate, but it should be when it's appropriate and when we've got all these things in place and all that. So it's all about the sort of timing and this, and Keir Starmer didn't want to put the word immediate in there and his, all of his party were ready to quit and, you know, because they felt so strongly about the use of this word immediate. And so the fact that William said as soon as possible, the question is really about the whole statement, about the whole visit, about everything that he's done. It all boils down to, is the phrase as soon as possible partisan? Because he didn't say immediate. It's one of those things where you can read it however you want to read it. Like if you are sitting there thinking, I want an um, immediate ceasefire, and I'm going to assume that William also wants an immediate ceasefire, as soon as possible means like in one second. That's yeah. as soon as possible. But if you're thinking, well, as soon as possible, once that's feasibly possible, and we have helped by providing aid and stop it and providing um, arms to one of the countries and stopping the conflict by doing these certain things then as soon as possible can be in three years' time. I mean, did you settle on a side? I settled that as soon as possible, 
does not mean immediate. It means as soon as possible. And whether that is immediately, that's up for debate. But it just means when it is feasible. Actually, the thing that swayed me in the end was not actually anything he said. It was the fact that he released this statement and did this visit the day before this massive vote <laughs> was due to take, take place. And this it's this vote specifically where the, the, the term immediate has become this lightning rod. The fact that it was released when people were considering how they were going to vote then makes that choice to not say immediate feel very deliberately like he's he's backing the conservative position and encouraging other people to do so the timing i when i've been looking at the responses they all seem to be very focused on the statement mm -hmm. and i'm like okay fair enough but i think like you said the timing was always the bigger issue for me because it happened you know in the middle of all these talks and so close to a vote that very much did not go down sort of well politically for anyone it was quite a sort of disastrous evening in parliament when that might have happened i've got that later <laughs> <laughs> did not go well so i think i don't know whether william sat there and thought how can i really promote a message without anyone knowing i don't think he sat down and thought i need to really back a government position like necessarily sat and did that but mm -hmm. i think he didn't sit there and think what are the government positions exactly on this and make sure i don't go against one so uh, yeah i think I think it, it's a conscious decision to not use the word immediate on the eve of a massive vote about, which is essentially about the use of the word immediate. That's what it boils down to. However, if somebody said to me, I will give you a million pounds or even not a million pounds, I'm not that greedy, a hundred thousand pounds. If I could defend William and do it convincingly, I also could do that. I think that's the thing. I was, it was, it's like, I don't think, I think it is a partisan statement. However, I could argue the case that it wasn't because the phrasing as soon as possible was so vague yes like he didn't say the word immediate which is the issue but he also didn't not say it at all mm -hmm. kind of used a synonym and also so earlier on we talked about constitutional conventions and we talked about how they're kind of often sort of unwritten and but what i didn't mention is that somebody did try and write them down mr gordon brown what he did was he created something that is called the cabinet manual and the cabinet manual is essentially an attempt to write down all of the conventions in one place so that everybody can go and look at them. Um, it's a sort of official government document. It's essentially like a guidebook for how politicians should behave. But there are some parts in there that are about monarchy and the constitutional conventions around the monarchy. It says they don't, royals don't become publicly involved in party politics. But then it also says that they should act on the advice of ministers. So ministers are members of the government who are sort of special people given a specific area to look after. So like they might be in charge of the finances of the country or the military or whatever. It doesn't say that they should act on the advice of members of parliament who are just anybody who is an elected person. So you could argue that if Rishi Sunak, as a minister, went to William and said, you should put out this statement now, William would actually have been obliged to do it because the cabinet manual says that, you know, ideally he shouldn't get involved in party politics, but if his minister tells him to, he should. So I think the issue could then be that he's being asked to do things by politicians who have no respect for convention. I guess the problem with this is that we don't know exactly whether Rishi did ask him, but then it's okay. you could also say then, 
if William had gone to Rishi Sunak and said, I want to do this statement, should Rishi Sunak have followed constitutional convention and said no? So was it still Rishi Sunak's fault? Kesley Palace, helpfully, gave some tidbits and were like, the government was briefed by the foreign something, Commonwealth, FDCO, about the statement and the visit. And then a spokeswoman from Rishi Sunak said it was consistent with the government permission, a permission position. And I was like, okay, but you would also see that if you when William write a statement that really backs me up here, pal. Exactly. Yeah. It's it like you said, it's impossible to know to know where the idea came from. But it was being discussed between the government, the foreign office, the um royals, and no one went, this seems a bit dodgy, guys. Should we maybe hold back on this? They're all equally involved. So there's that's one defense I would use. The other defense I would use is also in the cabinet manual. Throughout the cabinet manual it refers to the sovereign. So could you say William is not the sovereign, he's a member of the royal family, but he's not the monarch, so does any of this apply to him anyway? And actually, that's the defence that Charles used. I- I'm just the Prince of Wales, I'm not the monarch, so I can I have a bit more flexibility in what I can do. And my argument would obviously be he holds a public office, so implicitly it's sort of the rules should apply to him. But technically, it doesn't say that. Prior to, say, World War II, it was the monarch, really, was the, the, the key... Yeah fella or woman um the key person in charge the the one that everything was about they were the only really relevant ones and you know although the other royals did think they were just sat at home all the time it was the monarch whereas i think since world war ii and there's been such a shift to this kind of charity patronage work um as the kind of the day-to-day every royal's doing this and then the monarch does the special things the shift has been that these other royals have had more focus on them their words are heard more we know more about their beliefs so in terms of that soft diplomacy power that people like to bang on about royals having the other royals also do have that but it's not written down anywhere that when we talk about you know this constitutional convention we are talking about the royal family we're talking about the sovereign and i also think because it's been such a recent shift in terms of monarchy not in terms of my life but (laughs) there's a monarchy from the sovereign to the royal family as being the big shift i think there is a change but it's possibly too soon for it to be official if you know what i mean i mean it wasn't that long ago that gordon brown did the rules but if they were doing them again would they include other people um but then again you know then you might have to define what a working royal is and nobody actually knows what a working royal is so you know that's (laughs) maybe they don't want to do that because it's actually just simpler to say oh we also meant everyone else as well so yeah, I suppose that's one point that, you know, you could argue that it doesn't even apply to William. The the last kind of point I had that if I had to defend William, I, I would use is the nature of constitutional conventions themselves. So we talked earlier about the fact that they are very, very important and that they do come about for a reason that they are part of keeping the, the whole country running and stable. However, we also talked about how they are flexible. And I actually think there was a great example because the vote I mentioned that happened the day after William's statement Basically, the SNP put their amendment forward and then Labour put one forward and the Conservatives put one forward. And there's a guy called the Speaker of the House whose job is to kind of decide the run, the sort of the schedule of the day in Parliament and to keep things, you know, relatively. Uh, and it's convention that you should only table two amendments, bef- you know, people choose between these two options. And that if lots of parties put, you know, if the Conservatives and Labour both put one forward, the Conservative Party, as the government of the day, 
their amendment should go first. So it should have been SNP's amendment versus the Conservatives' amendment. But for various reasons that I won't get into because they're outside the scope of this podcast, the Speaker decided to put forward everybody's options. SNP and Conservatives walked out. <laughs> um, they were fuming. And these are people on polar opposites. So this was not like a left-right thing. These are people who hate each other. Obviously, it was very, very unpopular. And it does show that when these co- conventions are violated, people get really angry about it. But it does also show that, you know, he, he did break it. And maybe in the future, people will look back and think that was the right thing to do. And, you know, I have seen a lot of people saying, well, it doesn't make sense to force people to vote between two completely opposing views and not to have any other medium ground or any other perspective. I'm not saying that in this particular situation, I agree, <laughs> because I, I very, very much think that the part the non-partisan convention is incredibly important and I I will defend it very strongly but I think that other people might argue that maybe this is the time to change and maybe in 20 years we'll look back and think actually it's really good that the monarch is partisan and gets involved in loads of things I just have to say I turned over to the um, BBC parliament channel um during the thing after everyone had walked out but I didn't realize everyone had walked out and I was like where is everyone Earth is going on. <laughs> I checked my phone. I was like, oh, everyone's walked out. That makes more sense. Yeah, <laughs> so I was just yeah. like, this seems a bit thin on the ground. There's about 10 people here. What is mm. happening? Normally that's for like debates about hedgehogs' rights and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, so I think my general view is the same as yours, which is that the timing of this made it made his word choice feel deliberate. But I also do think that there are genuine, valid arguments that people could make and I think it, the thing is, I just don't see people making these. There's lots lots of opinions on multiple sides. Lots of people saying, oh, I don't really care. Um, lots of people who were just saying things that were blatantly wrong. Like someone was like, you didn't even mention the hostages. I was like, no, he very much did. The word hostage is in there. Um, but then I was like, N- all of you, you're like backing a horse, but you've not got any evidence for it. It's like, you've just, it's like on the Grand National, people are like, oh, I like the yellow one. I'll vote for that. It's, it was every opinion even whether I agreed with it or not, felt like it had just someone had gone to them and went, you need to have an opinion on this. Five, four, three. Okay, brilliant. Next one. And no one's saying that constitutional convention should change or and no one's saying that William has done something partisan because of a specific reason. They're saying he's being political and his grandmother would be furious. And no matter where I sit, you both have good arguments, but none of you are actually mentioning them. And I feel like like I haven't seen anybody mention the cabinet manual. I've seen a lot of people saying things like, oh, well, Charles got, you know, it was convention that Charles got involved in politics. So therefore, it's OK that William did. But you were all really horrible to Charles when he got involved in politics. You can't erase history now. And also, just because Charles did it doesn't make it OK that William did it. But if you said, because the cabinet manual says this, maybe I just expect things to be too dry and it's not sexy enough to talk about the cabinet manual but that's actually a, an evident a piece of evidence that you can point to you know that these articles are being written by royal experts by political experts by legal experts and they're saying they're not mentioning the conventions of you know a constitutional monarchy or they're using the word political instead of partisan i'm like either you don't understand it and you're wrong or you do understand it and you're not using the correct terms, which just makes me not trust what you're saying. And that, I think, that's the one, that's where that's when I got really angry about it. Where everyone is an idiot. <laughs> so that's, like, social media, I was just getting annoyed, but I can deal with that because um, it's a vacuum of people spouting their thoughts that they think everyone wants to hear. 
Well, yeah, I think we're kind of moving naturally into our next section, which is really about the reaction to the statement. And I think you're right that the loud minority have come to dominate this conversation generally about Israel and Palestine and not, you know, not just for this specific statement. So most of what you see, if you go on social media, is kind of like glowing reviews about how William is a wonderful human being, a statesman, how he's going to single-handedly end conflict in the Middle East, and he's the greatest person ever. Or people saying that he's terrible, that he's, you know, bloodthirsty, that he's uh, interfering in things that he shouldn't be, or he's only getting involved for good press, which is one of the funniest things I've ever seen, because this has not been good press. <laughs> um, if he was getting involved for good press, I don't think that he would be doing this. Yeah, most people are probably in the middle. And I think a lot of the coverage around this has bothered me because it feels like sensationalist, including from places that you wouldn't expect to be sensationalist. So I had a very, very long rant on WhatsApp to Grace to get my feelings about the articles in The Guardian out because The Guardian is meant to be the left wing newspaper in the UK. And they had a whole argument about a whole piece in their uh, online edition about how it would be great if the monarch gets involved in politics all the time and is partisan all the time and we just got rid of that convention and just basically essentially had a dictatorship and it really really upset me i do think though that within there there are some people who are asking valid questions even if i don't necessarily have faith that they are asking them as questions so there's a lot of people who are saying things like oh why is he doing this or why is he doing that I'm like you're not actually asking because you want the answer <laughs> you're asking because you're trying to point out something you think he's done wrong but I actually think it is a good question. I've, I found it really interesting to see a lot of, first of all, I've seen a lot of sort of liberal left-wing people say that A, he did the right thing by speaking out, and B, he should have done more, which has been really odd because I've seen a lot of people being like, oh, it's not enough. He should have said more. And I'm like, that that is, that's leaning into dictatorship there. That's an unelected official giving his opinion 24 hours before a vote. <laughs> yeah. um, whereas on the other side, I've seen a lot of people who traditionally would be more monarchists are like, how dare he get involved in this? Like, this is actually breaking the rules, which I've, I've, it's a really odd situation to be in. It's kind of confused my brain. Um, but I think, you know, like you said, there've been a lot of really good discussion points hidden inside all of this. And then I saw people being like, oh, it's really interesting that he stepped into this issue. Um, whereas there's been so many over the years that he hasn't stepped into Yes. Yeah. And then on the flip side of things, you've got people being like, oh, well, why is it so controversial that he talked about this? Um, but it was so easy for him to talk about Russia and Ukraine. And I mean, I can answer that one. It's because every party in the UK agreed that Russia invading Ukraine was bad. So it wasn't partisan. Simple. But I, I actually think it's a really interesting and valid point, which is, you know, when you open the door and you show that you are willing to bend the constitution once for one particular issue, that does arguably imply that every time he remains silent on every single other partisan issue for the rest of his life, he is therefore making an active choice to be so, to do so. And therefore, every time he remains silent, it isn't just he's being silent because that's what the, the royals do. He's being silent because he's made a choice. You know, it, it is dangerous to open that door. Yeah, something that kept, kept coming up was climate change. Not just for William. They said kind of Philip, Charles and William have all been very open about climate change over the years. Um, when And climate change is a political issue. And for a lot of that time, it was a partisan issue. But also within the general, like, climate change is bad thing that everyone does agree on in the UK, you know, the extent to which it is bad or where the blame lies for climate change or what should be done about it, is still a very partisan issue and you know 
decisions are made and then unmade very quickly. Um, so a lot, I saw a lot of people being like, climate change, when William talks about it, he talk, I mean, he quite openly talks about it a lot. Like, it's mm. his thing. Um, and it's never caused such a reaction. It's caused people, there have been people who've gone, you shouldn't be talking about that, but it's yeah. by no means been such a vocal reaction where, where or, although he has been towing the line and probably has crossed it a few times, if I go back through all of his statements, um, I think people sort of quite easily raised the fact that they were like, um, well, we've not really argued about this before, but he has made similar statements just about maybe less inflammatory topics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. There's just this extra layer with this conversation that isn't present with, you know, in most situations, people thought Russia was bad in the UK <laughs> and in the West. So, you know, it wasn't as controversial. We've talked about the public response, but what about the politicians? Well, I mean, I haven't found anything from anyone in Labour or SNP, sort of formal reaction from any of them. No, me neither. Yeah. I mean, they've got bigger things to be thinking about at the moment. But we have had a statement from Rishi Sunak, which I think Grace mentioned earlier briefly, that essentially said the state, William's statement was consistent with the government position and we welcome that intervention. It is important that we speak with one voice as a nation. I It was... It was the most nothing statement I've ever had. Like, because it wasn't even like we were aware of this statement and agree with it, or we were aware of this statement and have no issues with it. It was just like, we all speak together. We are one country on one of the biggest issues that has divided the country in recent memory. You know, it's it's not the one where we speak in all of one voice here. No. Like, that, no. that was probably Russia-Ukraine, that one. Yes, yeah, definitely. But I think we've had views from other Tories, other members of the Conservative Party and other right-wing figures that have maybe differed from Rishi Sunak's voice. So there have been lots and lots of articles. They haven't had like a quote from anybody who's gone on the record, but lots of articles in the press have said that there are quite a lot of members of the Conservative Party who are not very happy about the statement, but they are letting it go because they don't want to get into a fight with the future king. Which, yeah, but we have had some go on on record, including the vice chair of the all-party parliamentary group on anti-Semitism, who have kind of gone on the record to criticise him. The general view is sort of, you shouldn't be talking about this, stick to what you normally do and stop getting involved in this conversation. You know, there have been people talking about it. um, And also a lot of like, uh, people being like, it's ill-timed. Someone said it was, I think it was a Tory who said it was ill-timed. And I was like, you are speaking sense, and I've never said that before. Yeah. That's all right. You're right. It was ill-timed. Yeah, this is very confusing for me, this whole thing. Because I'm like, wait a minute. I agreed with something Nigel Farage said, and he's a very far-right politician. This is, doesn't make me happy. <laughs> this is not comfortable. Yeah, and I there was a quote from um, a Conservative MP called Andrew Percy, who said, the underlying principle of the, yes, the yeah. our constitutional monarchy is that members of the royal family do not engage in contentious political issues of the day on which there are divergent and strongly held beliefs in this country. And I don't think that's exactly right, because I think, but they do engage when, when they're sort of visiting charities and things like that. They visit charities for homelessness and... Refugees. Yeah, refugees and issues that are contentious. But I think... What he was actually trying to say, but said it wrong, was that royals shouldn't be speaking about those issues, which is kind of right. Yes. Yeah, definitely. But I do think the motivation is different because I think if William had um, issued a statement that said Israel is the greatest country in the world and should be allowed to do whatever it wants forever, then Nigel Farage would have been like, this is great. A statesman, you know, I think there are some people who are speaking with this 
genuinely the politicians on the right who are maybe a bit more sort of populist and maybe are more about just like saying whatever they think the public want to hear or uh, are not really about conserving the constitution they're not traditional conservatives they're the people who tend to kind of be like oh what William said was absolutely terrible and I don't I think as I said if if this was about Spain or Portugal or anything anywhere else I don't know why I keep landing on those two countries but um, or anywhere else I think I would say the exact same thing whereas I think these people's motivation is different uh, and they would change their principles depending on whether or not what William said was something that they support or not. They're right but they're right for the wrong reason. <laughs> yes yes. The other sort of big response has been from is the Israeli government. So what they said was Israelis, of course, want to see an end to the fighting as soon as possible. And that will be possible once the 134 hostages are released and once the Hamas terror army threatening to repeat the October 7th atrocities is dismantled. We appreciate the Prince of Wales's call for Hamas to free the hostages. We also recall with gratitude his statement from October 11th condemning Hamas's terror attacks and reaffirming Israel's right to self-defense against them. I read in the Telegraph they'd heard from sources in the Israeli government that they essentially thought that his statement was naive. Uh, they weren't very pleased with it, but they also didn't want to get involved in a fight. And I think actually when you read a lot of the sort of anonymous quotes from conservatives, the ones who haven't gone on the record, or you read these this, this, this statement from Israel, you kind of, there is a general tone from a lot of the response of kind of almost like a child who's distracting you from what you're really trying to do. Yeah, I thought that with a lot of them, like the more... I don't want to say highbrow because that has to be, but the more official the statements got, apart from Richard Sunak, because he's an outlier. Um, like I think, you know, like obviously the Israeli government or the um or like a lot of international sort of justice committees for Palestine, they were saying, like, um, with all due respect, this is this is irrelevant. And yeah. we're talking about an actually important issue here, and this is just some man's opinion. Yeah. So he can do what he likes, and we're just going for him. We obviously thought, as we have been doing for everything for the past year and a bit, <clears throat> um, would this have been an issue if the statement had come from King Charles or King Charles as the Prince of Wales, Prince Charles or Queen Elizabeth II? Hopefully, they've all done the odd, slightly partisan thing in their time to help out with these discussions. Yes, they have. Yeah, I think it's difficult to compare because, as I talked about earlier, there is a distinction between the sovereign and the heir to the throne. I think it, I think it works in the end. I think it works. We just have to acknowledge that there is that distinction. Um, and I also just want to say we're we're going to be using some similar examples of things that have happened. And my examples are very recent, and um, that's why it makes me laugh because one of the other things I keep seeing in the press is his that this is William's unprecedented intervention and I'm like this could not be more precedented guys okay well I'm going to start with a uh very it feels very light coming after war but my um first my first choice of slightly dodgy moments was one which I almost don't think was intentionally partisan but ended up being which was last year when Charles went to the COP summit um, wearing a Greek tie-pin. He wore this Greek tie-pin mere days and hours after the mm. um, there was a sort of breakdown in communications between Rishi Sunak and the Greek Prime Minister about the 
Elgin, Elgin marbles that we have in the British Museum that we stole from Greece hundreds of years ago and Greece wants back and we're not giving them back. The defence from the palace was like, oh, it's just a tie that he had in his cupboard that he looked out and it's like, really? You know, you can argue all you like that Charles's dad was Greek and he just happened to feel like this was the right time to pay homage to his father. However, um, there are other ties in existence yes. and to not to be non-partisan, all he had to do was put on a different tie. Dude, yeah. <laughs> so, I feel like this the blame for this one is on him. He he has more than one. He can't use the defense if it was the only thing that was clean. The example that I highlighted was also from last year. So again, this is very precedented, which is when he met with Ursula von der Leyen, who is the president of the European Commission. So she's not like an MP, but she has an important political position. I've also always called her Ursula von der Leyen, and there's no D in it. <laughs> Apparently von der Leyen. Basically, he met with her the same day that the government announced their controversial deal to resolve some Brexit related issues in Northern Ireland. I won't get into that, but the government announced us and Ursula have got this deal in place. And people said that the timing of his meeting with Ursula was meant to kind of be a way of signaling his approval for the government's plan. And so that he, they were trying to put pressure on monarchists in the Conservative Party and the DUP, which is the main party, one of the main parties in Northern Ireland. Um, and because they're monarchists, they obviously would maybe listen to the views of the king more. And so by having the king sort of meet with Ursula on the same day this deal had been announced, it was kind of a way of saying, oh, Charles approves of this deal, so you should as well. And actually, I think if you compare the reaction to that situation to the reaction to the situation that we've got at the moment, it was probably quite similar. So you had the government who came out and backed Charles and then you had the left-wing parties who almost exclusively ignored it <laughs> because they didn't really care about that. And then you had some conservatives who came out and criticised him and said that he shouldn't have done it. I, th I actually think the tone was slightly more dramatic in Charles's case and slightly more intense, even though it was a less controversial issue, perhaps, because you had people who were... I, I, remember this because I think I mentioned this in the podcast as well who said that this was so serious that it would end the monarchy yeah I think I remember I always remember it only because you made that post of yours a uh, few months later when you were like does anyone remember this event where someone said that it was going to end the monarchy and all these people were guessing and you were like nope 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 um and I was like oh I had genuinely forgotten that <laughs> I appreciate Charles having two partisan moments within his like first year of being king mm -hmm. just to really after he spent years being like yeah I know I'm really partisan but only until I'm king, guys. Then I'm just going to be signaled. To see whether or not the Queen would have got the same reaction to something like this, I think the biggest example I can think of is the proroguing of Parliament. So, in 2019, the Queen prorogued Parliament, which basically means that she ends the parliamentary session. And she did that on the advice of the Prime Minister at the time, who was Boris Johnson. And later on, there was a court case and it was ruled that that decision was unlawful because Boris essentially, again, I don't want to get too much into domestic politics, but Boris had asked the Queen to do it so that they could run out the clock so that the government wouldn't be able and the parliament wouldn't be able to vote in time. And so the dead, we'd reach the deadline for Brexit and we would basically end up with a no deal Brexit. Overwhelmingly, the response in this particular situation to the Queen was positive. So cruel, evil Boris had tricked the poor, lovely Queen into doing something unlawful that she shouldn't have done. So the example I had for the Queen was in 2016, mm. just before the Scottish referendum when 
she was in at church walking back chatting to some lovely people and one of them was like oh so what what do you think about this upcoming vote and she's kind of something like I think they should think very carefully about the future in my head the Scottish referendum and the Brexit referendum are like was like this nightmarish day and I know it didn't all happen in the same exact time period but they were so close together and you know there were all these issues um and one of the issues was obviously if they went independent I say they you are one of those they people <laughs> would Scotland I went have, independent <laughs> if you went independent would Scotland have the queen as the head of state um so the queen was very involved in this political issue just by being the head of state of a country that was about to go independent you know with the option and she was like yeah I think they should really consider this one giving any kind of response was partisan and hers was like mm, seems like not the best option to do it just saying again um, I think it had an I think it had a reaction from people who were pro-independence that it was negative and people that were against independence were like yeah big fan of you which I think you can sort of see replicated in the way that a lot of the people that have spoken up about William's statement being wrong are people who maybe disagree with some of the aspects of his statement anyway. Yeah, I mean, I, to speak about that issue specifically, I was fine with it, <laughs> ironically. Um, <laughs> you should think carefully before you vote. Um, maybe I'm just taking it too on face value. Either way, regardless of what I think on that particular issue, it was taken in a certain way. You know, it, the Queen did get more grace, I think, in a lot of situations. But I think that, you know, there were times where people criticised her choices, you know, so she wasn't completely perfect the whole time and no one ever said anything negative. Yeah, I feel like when I was doing my research, I noticed that a lot of things that, where the Queen has come up as being partisan came up kind of after the event or because someone else said about it rather than it being sort of straight from the horse's mouth, which I think has been the is a, the biggest difference between Charles and William and the Queen is Charles and William are just putting their name to everything like yep I said that I said this I'll do that I'll wear the tie it's fine whereas the Queen was like it would be like three years ago the Queen did in fact break the law and everyone's like yeah but that was three years ago and last week she opened a hospital and looked cute so it's fine now guys yeah there's also I think a difference in sort of the context because the Queen was asked a question on the spot that she had to immediately come up with a value, you know, a, an answer that wasn't going to offend anybody. And I do think that even if you're in conversation, you still have responsibility to try and exercise constitutional conventions and all that. However, I do also give people a little bit of leeway that, you know, it's hard to come up with something on the spot up to a big question like that. Whereas there's a difference between that and kind of the government asking you to suspend Parliament. And within William's case, if he'd said something in a meeting that was maybe a little bit dodgy I might have been okay because I might you know depending on the context I might have understood what he was trying to go for but this was a statement that was carefully considered and run past lots of different people there was deliberate thought that went into how this was constructed and if you compare the official positions of like the, the Brexit 2019 thing and um, William the Queen got off a lot easier. And I also think people read into things like I always remember when the Queen opened, state, uh, opened Parliament wearing a hat, a blue hat with yellow flowers on. Everyone's like, it's the EU to support. She is against Brexit. Uh, It was also like when I was doing my research, I kept coming across articles that were like examples of when the Queen was partisan. And they would give examples of times when she wasn't. Like there was an example in 2003 where she was at the Welsh National Assembly and was like, you should all vote more. I was like, no, every party thinks you should vote more. That's just common sense, guys. Um, So I think sometimes the issue gets really clouded by this general confusion about what is and isn't partisan and what 
also what is and isn't a statement on it. Yeah, so I think if we were to summarise kind of the comparison between them, I think he's his the reaction to it has been less than I think it would be if Charles did the same statement or had done the same statement as Prince of Wales because he has a reputation for being interfering, which William doesn't really have. But he also didn't get the same leeway that the Queen would have gotten. And I do think that that's because she, you know, it was very rare for her to get involved in any of these things across the entire course of her reign. There's lots of contextual things that kind of influence the reaction to it. You know, in my view, it doesn't really matter. It's sort of the convention is the convention and whether you follow it or not, you know, it doesn't matter who it is. But I think for the general public, there is probably this, there it is context dependent as to whether or not they get upset about a violation of the convention or not. Yeah, I think, thinking right back to the start of the episode, you mentioned about like, so much of uh, constitutional convention is tradition and parliamentary things and all that, but also some of it is public opinion. And I think this is possibly the clearest example. And I always think of Charles, like Charles as Prince of Wales, he would say something like, um, I think we should not have chemicals on lettuces. And people would be like, that is the worst thing anyone has ever said. <laughs> and actually we should burn him at the stake. And yeah. now he'll, you know, say something actually controversial. And people will be like, oh, but he's, he's, oh, he doesn't mean it like that. He's a king. And, you know, all this effect there was for the queen had to go somewhere and yeah. a lot of people just went we'll just give it to Charles that's fine we'll just drop it down one I think William was also lucky that he has a lot of the affection of being sort of Diana's son I saw people like well, following in your mother's footsteps William if he were if it had been I don't know like Edward who'd given the statement yeah the reaction a no one would have known who he was but if people knew who he was and he'd given the statement I think the reaction would have been possibly more negative because he doesn't necessarily have that public protection of people generally generally liking him. I always insult Edward in these things. Sorry, Edward. Yeah, we should create a bingo game. We really should. And just have one of the slides be like, take a drink if Grace insults Sophie or Edward. <laughs> so much. Uh, yeah. Oh, dear. Yeah, so we've talked about quite a lot today, actually. I thought we, we, when we were talking about this, we were like, oh, it would be quite nice to have a slightly shorter episode. General summary, I would say, of this whole situation is, so Charles didn't start off as the great meddler. And I am a little bit concerned about the direction William is taking the monarchy in. I think, you know, it's only one statement. It's, it, it's you know, it's only one thing. But if he continues in this direction, I just worry about sort of the future trajectory of the monarchy, especially when you compare it to some or when you add in some of his other statements on things like working and like how he wants to have left patronages and how he wants to make real impact because no one else in his family ever has, apparently, um, which we did talk about before. I, I, so I think I think this does matter, but. I also think it'll be interesting to kind of see how it develops as the years go on. We are coming up to an election in the UK. Um, it's almost definitely going to be lost by the Conservatives and is going to be a Labour majority by Keir Starmer, who's the leader of the Labour Party. And I think he seems like somebody, maybe I'm wrong, but he seems like somebody who would respect the Constitution. And so I am very interested to see what happens in sort of 2025 and onwards. I think that's going to be the real test because what if there's a situation where William wants to speak about something and the government disagrees with him? Will he still listen? That's going to be the real test of whether or not he's abiding by constitutional convention. William's cho you know, choice of statement topic 
made any discussion rational discussion really really hard to have for most people because people have got such strong opinions on the Israel-Palestine conflict um and I think you know it is you you have to look at the statement not as a statement on the Israel-Palestine conflict but as a statement as a representative of the government because I think a lot of the opinions whether they've been supporting William or disagreeing with William or saying it wasn't enough or saying he shouldn't have done it have been because people have been agreeing or disagreeing with what he said rather than with whether or not he should have said it. If these choices that William has made this year, that Charles has made over the last couple of years happen more and more and they keep sort of being allowed, people letting them slide because, you know, it's only about some marbles. It's just a tie, that kind of thing. Or I kind of agree with the overall message, but I, you know, though if that is what keeps happening, then before long, you know, you're just going to make bigger and bigger statements each time until eventually you hit a point where it's a point of no return. Yeah. To use a similar example, there was a, a statement that Charles made when he was Prince of Wales in an offhand conversation with somebody about Putin. And this was before Ukraine and everything, but he said something about how, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I think he might have compared him to the Nazis or it, basically about how he was invading everything. It was very critical of Putin. I can't remember exactly what he said, but it was very critical. And I was really upset about that. And I think a lot of people at the time were like, why are you upset about that? Are you pro-Putin? And if you think, the thing is, Charles was right, 100% right. And history has proven that he was right because now they've invaded Ukraine. And I wholeheartedly agreed with what Charles was saying. I just don't think he should be the one to say it. We talked last week about how we're approaching our 100th episode. So if you have any ideas for what we could do for like a special 100th episode, please do send us uh, a message on Tumblr or Instagram or through our emails. Uh, all the link, uh, links and things will be in the description of the episode. Um, and please rate us five stars. Other than that, it is a goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.